Precision medicine, is it hype or help, fact or fiction? Welcome to Precision Insight. This is a podcast series where the most influential thought leaders and innovators in healthcare sit with me to chat about the latest technologies and tools of precision medicine. What do we have available today as patients, caregivers and healthcare providers? Are we seeing a difference in the healthcare system? What is coming up in the near future? If you want to know more about this incredibly fast-moving field of research and development, stay tuned. So hello, everyone. I'm your host, Martin Dawes. I'm the Chief Scientific Officer at Genexis Healthcare Systems. We're very excited to welcome our guest for today's episode, Adriana Kekik. Adriana is a pharmacogenomic pharmacist and the Program Director of Education Outpatient Pharmacy at the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. She is active in clinical care research and lecturing and has been involved in the development of pharmacogenomics services and education. She also sits on the pharmacogenomics task force at the Mayo Clinic. With two decades of clinical experience and expertise in medication therapy management, Adriana continues to advance pharmacy practice and pharmacy leadership. She is a founder of a networking platform dedicated to high impact professional women in healthcare. So welcome, Adriana. And I wonder if we could start by just talking about your current work a little bit. Could you tell the listeners a bit about yourself, especially the impetus for your interest in pharmacogenomics? Hi, Martin. Thank you very much for the invite. It's a pleasure speaking with you today. Yes, I am, as you said, a pharmacogenomic pharmacist currently working at Mayo Clinic in Arizona. I am very lucky to be able to practice pharmacy under these three shields of clinical practice, so direct patient experience, research, and education. And I semi-jokingly say that my focus is really genes, drugs, and bugs. In other words, elements, especially genetic elements that influence medication outcomes. As far as my journey, how I got there, I started pharmacy school in former Yugoslavia in time of somewhat adversity and moved here to US. I was able to continue my education. What I found really informative and inspiring during both times is as a pharmacist, I observed that pharmacists continue to be most accessible healthcare provider in both places with extensive pharmacology knowledge. But I also have seen people, including my family members that were given correctly prescribed medication or medications, but yet having eclectic outcomes and sometimes including non-desired outcomes. So I really wanted to understand why and how we can personalize these medication therapies. And that's the road that I have been on for the past about 25 years. And that's my current focus. How can we use the tools, including genomic as a tool, or pharmacogenomic, I should say, as a tool, in making better medication selections and hopefully collaborating with the patient and their physicians or providers in selecting better medication and having better medication outcomes. Yes, I mean, I think that that's something perhaps the public don't necessarily see is the unexpected adverse events associated with very effective medications. And obviously a classic example is a penicillin allergy. But beyond that, there are a whole range of adverse events that we're trying now using not just pharmacogenetics, but other aspects of care to prevent. Implementation of pharmacogenetics into health systems is quite challenging. 
And how do you see the role of pharmacists changing over these maybe last three or four years, specifically in the personalized medicine arena? So that's a great question. I do see a lot of positive in recent years in respect to pharmacists playing more engaged role in pharmacogenomic implementation initiatives. So essentially, I am seeing pharmacists take a lead in their institutions, or at least being collaborative team members when it comes to implementation. But I'm also seeing a movement now of using this pharmacogenomic testing at the point of care in community care settings. So not only in hospital institutions or academic institutions, but really pharmacists kind of taking a lead in their communities. So your retail pharmacies, community pharmacies, and, and, and so on. So there is a sense of this satisfaction from being more involved in practicing on top of one's license. But there is also a sense of significant ramification because we're kind of expanding what we do and what we typically have done, incorporating the pharmacology knowledge, but really adding this additional layer of genetic knowledge. You will oftentimes hear me say that I think of pharmacogenomics is really pharmacology on steroids. And what I mean by that is in order for us to not only understand how the basic science gets kind of translated into clinical use, you do have to have a good sense of how these medications are metabolized. So pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic knowledge oftentimes is needed and it becomes essential. So I think of pharmacists as these medication, if you will, experts, simply because they are most extensively really trained in applying pharmacology in their clinical practice, and therefore really being intuitive lead when it comes to implementing pharmacogenomics in their respective practices. I think that that's absolutely right. I couldn't agree more. And certainly when I started work on pharmacogenetics more than 10 years ago, it had been a long time since I've looked at P450 pathways or using the term pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics. And, you know, my level of knowledge before doing this was really about grapefruit juice inhibition of P450 pathways and mm -hmm. not much more. And as you say, I think that the pharmacogenetics has really ramped up that knowledge so that I think the pharmacists particularly have a lead on us because they have been still using those terms much more than maybe the physicians have. So I couldn't agree more. In terms of point of care, you mentioned that. Have you got an example of that happening? So there are actually several examples here in the U.S. with community, including independent community pharmacies using pharmacogenomic testing. Now, mind you, Martin, there are different companies, pharmacogenomic testing companies that are currently available, which is a whole other conversation almost, not almost, it's a whole other conversation and discussion to be had as to what kind of pharmacogenomic testings, you know, we have both clinical and what kind might be emerging in more direct-to-consumer testing. The hope, of course, is regardless of the maybe specific examples, is the point becomes how do we really empower both pharmacists and physicians to know how to navigate through this space of determining what pharmacogenomic testing should they use in their clinical practice. So the hope really is community pharmacy setting, institutional setting, and so on, that the pharmacogenomic testing that's used has a sound clinical board. 
I certainly can link some of the examples of community pharmacy testing, both recent ones and some that we have had in the past maybe five to 10 years for your listeners and for the audience. Thank you. I mean, I, I see it happening in the same way you do, that there is much more coming out. Integration seems to be critical and certainly for use of this information, not just for that snapshot of, I'm thinking of giving a drug, I need an immediate test to tell me whether it's safe or not, the allopurinol HLA as an example. But moving forward to that, as I introduce new medications or take them away from patients over time, it's making sure that information, that pharmacogenetic information is still there. And I know that the Mayo has been pioneering work with electronic medical records. Have you got any sort of descriptions of how that is actually happening that we could hear? Yes, and that's an excellent actually point. So there are many obstacles in terms or challenges and opportunities, let's say, in terms of pharmacogenomic implementation. We kind of touched on one, and that is your basic and translational clinical research. How do we bring from what we have observed in these studies, either genome-wide studies as of now, or maybe in the past, these single gene studies, how do we really bring that to the clinic? And then, of course, once we bring that to the clinic, how do we really integrate that into the clinical workflow? So one of the lessons we have certainly shared with those who have been looking how to implement this into their clinics is the number of factors needing to be in place in order for the implementation to be successful. So one big kind of lesson would be education. So education or pharmacogenomic knowledge or educating your implementer is of essence. Uh, as a matter of fact, we not only focus on educating the clinicians who are practicing right now, but we're also kind of starting early on with pharmacogenomic education being implemented in medical schools and medical residents are getting PGX component and other genomic components as well. So once that part is in, the next step, of course, is especially for practitioners, for clinicians who have patients who were swabbed, the results are back, and now the question is, well, how do I act on this? Who is going to guide me through this process? Our second big lesson has been really making sure that we have sound clinical decision support tools. So why is that important? Well, the pharmacogenomic data, as you know, Martin, and studies and, and so on, it's very dynamic. This data changes. There could be new knowledge that is linked to either a particular drug or set of genes or particular variants. And so if you have clinical decision support in place that is dynamic and working with this influx of knowledge, that actually can, in a way, take a perceived burden from physicians or clinicians to say, I do have a guiding light here as how to act on that data and how to prescribe medications that might be affected by these genes or genetic variants and now having that new knowledge implemented at the point of care. But that, of course, brings the other parts of our implementation factors that need to be in place, and that is having standardized laboratory procedures in place, making sure that the genetic language that's used between different pharmacogenomic testing laboratories is not only sound, but at least reflective or same, hopefully not much different. 
And there are many other things, of course, related to, to the pharmacogenomic testing, lab standardization, reimbursement, and other issues that we certainly have encountered in terms of pharmacogenomic implementation, not only here, but in other institutions and globally too. Yeah, I think that you've touched on a lot of factors in there, and that's sort of slightly scary to a user. I mean, I think that education, I think everyone would, yeah, okay, got that. Then there's the clinical decision support tool. It's got to be dynamic and integrated, okay? And now we've got the changing knowledge, and I think it is quite challenging for clinicians to understand all this. And finally, that standardization of tests, and we've been coming across this as well, where People say, well, we've got a kit that does SIP2C9, for example, but then that's great, but what's star alleles? And then, of course, the clinicians are saying, what's a star allele? And if you don't know that your test is doing the same star alleles as the proposed new test, then you may get different interpretation. And, and so the nuances are, are really quite difficult. I think, you know, that last part is actually going to be one of the more difficult parts is standardizing tests so that... If we get a test from one company, then it's going to be, we can interpret it in the same way as a test from another company. I agree, Martin. And I think I would add to that exactly what you just commented. This really emphasizes the need for that institutional oversight or whatever else you might have in place, depending on your practice setting. There should be logistics in place as far as how do we interpret the evidence and what that clinical implementation looks like based on that evidence interpretation. Absolutely. I think you've raised a a lot of very useful points and introducing pharmacogenetics successfully means that pharmacists and physicians have to consider all these factors and, and institutions definitely do have a part to play in that. In terms of the future, but you touched on some of the the challenges that I think that we need to overcome to make it useful in everyday clinical care. What do you think is going to be the most exciting development in personalized medicine going forward? Oh, what a great question that is. (laughs) So there are several elements, but it seems like a lot of this really leads to leveraging technology that has been expanding exponentially. So some of the most kind of exciting things that I am observing is how do we not only leverage, but emphasize the need for using something like artificial intelligence, obviously machine learning, you know, deep machine learning and so on, because we really need to think about a more complex and complete picture here. If you think about pharmacogenomics, you know, kind of me mentioning pharmacogenomics is pharmacology on steroids in my mind or in my eyes, but really when I meet with patients, it's not just the genes that play a role here, genetic variants. It usually is a combination of things. So it's a combination of, say, metabolomics, proteomics, microbiome plays role as well. We know that there are certain instances where gender plays role in terms of medication metabolism and medication outcomes. Age, you know, patient-specific factors, name it for all of these that I just included and more. So we are hoping to have more of this multi-omics, pharmacoomics, if you will, approach. And how do we really do that? I am thinking at this point, AI seems the most reasonable and solid way to do that. And even with this pandemic that we're currently experiencing, those broad assumptions as how we achieve better health with data sharing, interoperable data, using telehealth, more empowered 
or in patient-centered care, aside this unprecedented scientific breakthrough, how do we integrate all of that to have better medication outcomes? We obviously cannot use traditional tools, so maybe challenging ways how the EHR, electronic health record, is done, making sure that we have discrete data that is available to easily integrate in EHR, using AI to hopefully guide maybe better understanding of disease phenotypes and also medication outcome phenotypes and so on, I think is going to be focal point in time to come. You've touched on so many things there. I'd never heard of pharmacoomics. So that's a new one for me, invented here maybe in this podcast, but absolutely it is taking into account so many variables to predict the most safe and effective medications, particularly when patients are on so many medications. And the last thing you touched on, I think, is COVID-19 pandemic is the amount of virtual care that's now happening and seeing the differences. I think we've been just been through a a watershed for virtual care. And we will now be, I think, taking on more and more virtual consultations as standard of practice within our own clinics and seeing then how we can integrate all this information into a virtual consultation will be challenging. And I haven't seen yet. So a question to you, are pharmacists starting to do virtual care? Great question, Martin. Yes, we are. And we actually have been. So even prior to COVID-19, there were many efforts really in place to integrate telehealth or telemedicine or telecounseling, especially, I think, initially and, and still ongoing in those areas where patients don't have easy access. So that might be rural area, but not only rural areas. It's also for those patients who might be bedridden or there are certain specific factors, patient-specific factors that limit their exposure to direct face-to-face visit. But the problem, of course, Martin, with that is that reimbursement is still lagging. Just like with PGX, the reimbursement yeah. is still lagging because not only do we need larger, better empowered studies and so on, we need these studies to produce results that are relevant for all. There is that saying that personalized or precision medicine, even if you use them interchangeably or differently as, as definitions, is still predominantly white. We need to make sure that we are integrating these data sets and compiling data sets that are representative of overall population, not just pockets of population. So telehealth has been very helpful as far as reaching out to people who may have limited access. But more importantly, I think this is a consumer-also-driven endeavor because it's less disruptive than having to get in your car, drive, go to the appointment, and drive back. So reimbursement part, of course, is going to be a very interesting component to see. So hopefully better data to show cost effectiveness with using telehealth and PGX, actually, in time to come. I think that's right. So we've taken up quite a lot of your time and I really appreciate you giving that to us and helping us hear your experience and the points of view and where you think things are going forward. I just wanted to express my thanks and the thanks of Genexis. Please stay well and do take care and look forward to talking again. Thank you very much, Martin, for the invite. It has been a pleasure and likewise, stay healthy and stay safe.